We have been preaching through 1 Corinthians, and I just want to begin today with another little doctor anecdote that I do from time to time. If you go into your doctor today and say, hey, I had a virus last week, something like the flu, and now uh, you know, I'm coughing up productive stuff, and my chest really hurts on the right, and I have a fever, and they put the oxygen saturation monitor on your finger, and you're down around 92%. Um, that creates a certain scenario at your doctor's office where you've got an acute issue that has to be dealt with. So the, the, really the decision is, do you have enough comorbidities, problems along with that, that you need to be hospitalized? Or can we treat you for your pneumonia as an outpatient? And so during that 15-minute visit, while we decide what to do with you, <laughs> how to treat you, uh, we're not going to be talking about diet, exercise, cholesterol, you know, sleep habits, any of that kind of stuff. You have an acute problem that is presenting itself, and that problem itself has to be dealt with. The other generalities come about on another day. And I, I want to give you that picture to say, that 1 Corinthians is like that. 1 Corinthians is like that. And it's not just one, one problem. This is a church with about eight or nine or ten acute care visits that need to happen in a row. And if you go to seminary, they talk about this as the occasional nature of the letters in the New Testament. And what that occasional means is that the letters were occasioned by a certain set of circumstances in a church, and the letter is directed towards those particular things and not necessarily everything in general. So you can contrast the letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, that we've been looking at, with something like Ephesians. Ephesians appears to be less occasional. It seems to be more general. But in Corinth, they had a whole set of problems. And one of the key themes that has emerged as the months have gone by, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, now up through 14, is there seem to be some, some influential, perhaps affluent people who saw themselves as very spiritual and maybe more spiritual than other people. Paul refers to them in various ways as the pneumaticos, the spiritual ones. And so in this letter, he's been addressing them and, and really re correcting them, rebuking them and saying, hey, you spiritual folks, you like Apollos as a speaker or you like Peter, you're dividing up the church. If you think you're spiritual, you're off base on that. And you, you're so spiritual that it doesn't matter what happens in a person's body, so you haven't dealt with a person who's been involved in some heinous sexual immorality. And you're so spiritual, you're not really concerned about you influential folks taking the poorer brothers to court and oppressing them. You're so spiritual that you've decided that idols are nothing, so you're just going off to idol temples and eating meat sacrificed to idols and trampling the consciences of your brothers and spiritual sisters in your spirituality. And then he moves on then to talk about worship. So worship and spiritual gifts have been the subject for the last several chapters. And he goes, you're so enamored with spiritual gifts, particularly it looks like speaking in tongues seems to be such a novelty to you that you, you're, you're not considering whether or not you love other people. And this is what we talked about 
in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm, I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noises. So I want you to see the trajectory of that as we come to this text today where Paul is going to reach some conclusions about what we do in gathered worship, that those are very occasional in nature. It's part of an acute care visit. So when you think about this, a lot of people in this room have, and if, you, if that's not you, it's okay, uh, don't worry about it, but have spent a lot of time over the last two or three decades thinking about how should congregations worship. You know, you have uh, broadly evangelical independent churches that worship one way and Anglicans worship another way. And what kind of music should we have and all those things. And there emerged among people who believe the Bible this kind of, this sort of sense that, well, we should really just do what pleases God. You know, God is an audience of one, isn't there? Aren't there a bunch of songs about God's the audience of one? It's not about entertainment and all that kind of stuff. Well, we have to be careful to stick with the Bible on these things. It certainly is true, and we can find texts to say we want to please God in our worship. But I want to submit to you that over 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, Paul's primary concern is how is what we're doing here in gathered worship affecting one another? Does that surprise you? I hope, I want it to be shocking. I want to get your attention. That he's not really focusing uh, so much on the vertical aspect of what, what is God, God's evaluation of this, but what is it doing? Is, does it express love to the people around us? And so today, as we look at Paul's summary about the use of spiritual gifts, particularly about uh, speaking in tongues, we just want to see something really simple. It's been a long, a long march to this, but Paul is going to say, when you gather together for worship, we need to see understandable words. Understandable words aimed at building one another up in the faith with a setting that is orderly and understandable. Understandable words for building one another up in a, in a flow that promotes that understanding in an orderly flow. So if you have your worship guide, uh, we're going to be looking at page 12. Now I've included some of the text from last week just to demonstrate again that this is not only for those who believe, but it's also there's an expectation that outsiders or unbelievers are in the congregation as well. And that, that's often an argument about these things. And Paul clearly is saying we want to be cognizant of people who don't yet believe in the context of worship. So beginning at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24, he says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subjects to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I, uh, this is a, a, a tall thing to undertake, but we're going to plunge right into it and say the principle underneath this is that Paul wants the emphasis on understandable words in the context of gathered worship. You, you see that his expectation is that there's the power of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit in the speaking in verses 24 and 25 so that unbelievers are actually converted on the spot. And I just hold that up to you as a matter of prayer and expectation. What's your expectation when we come here to worship together? Just another Sunday that goes by? Or do we expect power from on high to bring deep conviction so that people are raised from the dead? And then he comes to his conclusion. That's actually from the prior paragraph. He says, what then, brothers? And this is a signal to you in language that all this discussion I've had about spiritual gifts, about prophecy in tongues, I'm about to get you down to where the rubber meets the road. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn or a psalm, has a song to sing, a lesson, and I'm not sure why the ESV put lesson. This is a teaching, a hymn or some teaching, presumably from Scripture, a revelation, uh, again, in this context, talking about prophecy, a tongue that is speaking in a a language that's unknown to the hearers, or an interpretation. So you see that this speaking is prominent in, in, in gathered worship. And I would just begin by saying, when you come together, uh, maybe that's the main part of this that Americans in the Southeast need to hear, that it really is a biblical mandate to gather together for corporate worship. And I'm not going to harangue you about it because you're here today. But for many, that seems to be a really kind of optional thing. And I would suggest to you that if we looked at at Corinthians and the rest of the New Testament, we would say that that gathered day of worship is the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, distinguished from the, the, the Jewish Sabbath day. That that was the day for gathering and giving and praying. And in that context, the the gathered worshipers bring hymns, words, and all of it should be understandable. And that's what he gets to in verses 27 through 29. If if someone is going to speak in a tongue, uh, there has to be an interpreter. Otherwise, if nobody understands, you're just a banging uh, gong or cymbal. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. You, you pray in the Spirit at home. 
And then he says um, about the prophets, like if a prophet is standing up speaking and, and somebody else wants to stand up and speak, the first speaker has to be silent. And the, one, the other can get up and give their, their revelation that they have. So the picture that you have in, in Corinth is, to me, I think reading between the lines, utter chaos. And I remember, I, I, I've mentioned this any number of times, after I was first uh, saved, uh, I wanted to be a charismatic for a while. It didn't really work out for me. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I remember being in a congregation where we were all singing in tongues at the same time. And, and as I look back on that, I go, it's just in, in direct contradistinction to what this text says. Why were, we, why were we really doing that? Well, I think we had that same kind of fascination with tongues. And he's saying, no, your speech, the, the, the words that come out have to be orderly. Now, let me just comment on prophecy in tongues We've been over this any number of times. Um, Ephesians 2.20 that we read earlier says this very clearly. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Apostles have to be the official apostolic office has to be an eyewitness of Jesus. Right? Right. You have to be an eyewitness of Jesus. You also have to do signs and wonders. That's what Paul says. That office, therefore, had to cease. So we certainly have one spiritual gift or office that ceases, and that's the apostolic office. And then it says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And if you look later on in Ephesians 3, you find that those prophets are New Testament prophets. They're the same kind of prophets that we would be talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone of that foundation of the church. The work of Christ is not repeatable. So we have this really strong evidence that the foundational aspect of the church included this ongoing revelation, which these prophecies, these interpreted tongues were equivalent to, to the Old Testament, and that in the closing of the canon and the ceasing of the apostolic age, we have that revelation. Now, I'm not, if you want to talk to me about that more privately, we can. Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't mitigate you praying and having impressions that are given to you by the Holy Spirit that might be beneficial to other people. It doesn't mitigate all kinds of things. We're, we're not, and I'm not using the word cessation because the Holy Spirit didn't evaporate, but it's clear from the text that, that those things went away. So when I was a wannabe charismatic, we used to like knock everybody in this room and me like, oh, you just took two chapters out of the Bible. You know, you just ignore them. They're not there. Well, that's not the case. And so I'm just standing up talking to you about that as a person who's been, you know, through the rigors of all this over decades. So what does that mean for us then as we apply this? We want in worship to have understandable speech for one another, and primarily the Word of God. I was just, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in Southeast Asia, in Thailand. I was with a hundred cross-cultural workers who are doing hard, hard grunt work. They are in, I didn't realize how many language groups there are in Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Laos, Thailand. There's all different kinds of subsets of people there. And so these are people who spent I spoke with one lady, she's been there for 14 years making disciples. 
And you don't know, uh, I remember back when I was in a village in Africa, how much of a strain it is. Some of you who aren't native English speakers are experiencing this right now. Uh, how much of a strain it is to understand in another language and have that affect your heart and your whole person. Understandability is really important. And so what you find is if you've been straining in worship situations and straining in teaching and preaching situations to understand, understand, when you get out into your native heart language, it's almost like a huge emotional release because now again, you can hear and understand the Lord meets with you verbally. And, and we want to emphasize that. Uh, this was a, a big deal back in the 70s and 80s that we've lost somehow. Uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called God is There and He's Not Silent. You don't have to think and wonder about what does God have to say about things because He's spoken to us through His Word. It's a verbal revelation of the invisible Father. That words are really important. And so when we were there in Thailand, you see people beginning to sing hymns and be part of this and hear the Word and to see the, the force of spoken words in transforming and healing and building people up who are in a different situation. And we become numb to that because we can have a podcast anytime we want to play in our ear and our heart language. So the, what Paul is saying here is absolutely critical and it goes along with the Word. And this is why I'm very thankful about the structure of our worship. I'm thankful for Andrew who organizes the liturgies. I think you'll agree the songs we sing are biblically based. You're singing the Word in some ways. And the confessions that we have are biblically based. And so we, we come expecting the building up of one another, the strengthening of one another by those words. Now, it's very important when you think about this, it says when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue. We try to promote that here by having a multiplicity of people read. Women, children, men, everybody young, old, to read the Scriptures. We try to involve people in the music team because it says each one of you, all of you together can contribute in that way. And just to, to think about this, Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. And you can take this, uh, I don't think it's a real danger in Presbyterian circles, but we really want the Word to go through your head into your heart and to affect your emotions in that way. And we want to really watch out for worship leaders and preachers who are simply just moving in manipulation of emotions all the time. Our emotions really need to follow the cognitive aspects of the Word. And we want emotion, right? We want our hearts to be inflamed and touched. But we want emotion built on the Word. And that's what he's saying here, that, that worship has to have understandable words in it. Well, that's the first point. The second point I want to talk about is that the goal of those words, and we've kind of already covered this, we'll be brief, is for building other people up. Look at the end of verse 27. It says, let all things be done for building up. I'll remind you that prior in the text that Andrew preached on two weeks ago, he said that what the prophets do is they speak to people 
for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And I want to say again that the focus of this as you hear about it is that the Word comes to build up believers and to have unbelievers fall down in their face and say, God is really among us. That's, that's, that's what you see in this text. And then it says uh, in verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So clearly the goal of our speaking in these contexts and our singing, remember it said about hymns, our singing, our speaking, our confessing, is that we be strengthened and built up for endurance and perseverance in the race of faith. And we also want to, to say it is for evangelism. It is for you to invite people to come and for them to say, wow, I heard the Word of God here. God is really among us. Now, what is it that, how are these words focused for building others up? And I just want to encourage you about this. This is really my, my sermon, right? It's the same. My kids say that I always have the same sermon. But it's Luke 24 is the summary of the Word of God, right? It says that Jesus opened the minds in His resurrection meeting with the disciples. He opened their minds so that he could, they could understand the Scriptures. And he said, this is what is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The gospel centered on Christ, the revelation of Christ and his work is the center of all the Bible. And we're never going to go wrong by emphasizing the gospel in the, in the context of our corporate worship. It's not just for getting your ticket punched to get into heaven. It's for persevering and being strengthened and built up. Now, I, I was able to experience that uh, when I was uh, in Southeast Asia last week. I, I want you to consider this because this is actually very common among missionaries. Um, I ran into a couple, so a husband and a wife who have children, and they've sold the whole farm here. This fellow had a lucrative career here. He was a professional in a certain area. And um, they took their kids and they've gone to Southeast Asia and they're living in hard places. Uh, we were hearing testimonies of, of uh, a couple of ladies, not the same people, who lived within eyeshot of the mosque. And they're sharing the gospel in Southeast Asia with a lady who sells barbecue outside the mosque. These people are doing the same thing. And what we were going over in our, in our talks and in, in preaching and speaking is are you relying on the love of God for you expressed in Christ? When you come here today, do you have a, a, a modicum of joy that's based on the fact that your relationship with the Father is not based on your performance? That Christ has performed. It's His righteousness that's freely given to you as a gift that you receive by faith. Your sins are forgiven. The Father can say, I love you, I don't have any doubts about you, all because of the work of Christ and not based on your performance. And what these people came... Now, these are people, you think about this, they've sold everything. The Gospel has given them motivation to go halfway around the world to tell other people about it. But they slipped into a performance mentality emotionally in their relationship with the Lord. 
So they were able to come with tears and say, thank you, we didn't realize what had happened to us. And do you see how that works? It's it's very simple. Uh, We're performers. And you go around and you tell a bunch of churches and people, I'm going to take the Gospel to Laos, to Cambodia. And you're there, and after you're there for a year, you find out that not everybody's beating down your door to hear the Gospel. And it's hard. And you find that people are resistant. And you've got to learn the language. And all these things are are against you. And then you've got to write your support letter home. What are you supposed to say? I'm taking your money. I've raised sometimes $110,000, $120,000, depending on where you live, a year for benefits, salary, for everything. And I, I don't have anything to anything glowing to report to you. And you see, this is one of the reasons why what happens very frequently is somebody goes out to do evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, and you find out in two or three years they flipped over to say, we're going to start an orphanage. Because it's a lot easier to write home and say, uh, we've, we've done something. We've accomplished something. And so the pressure's on It's a self-imposed pressure. Nobody is doing that to produce and perform. And so why would I go into that? Because the goal of our speaking is to build people up. And the fundamental way you build people back up is pointing them back to Christ again and again for faith and repentance. Now, it's not always just uh, that gracious thing, right? What we want to see as well. Grace doesn't mean anything if it doesn't come out of a conviction of sin. Right? Why do I need grace if I'm not a sinner? And so the Word of God's broad. It comes to us in narrative and poetry. It affects our emotions. It does all these things. But one of the fundamental things it does is it challenges us in our pride, our unbelief, our sin, and causes us to turn back to Christ. And so we really want, in a setting like this, what we're looking for is deep conviction of sin. For people to really, to really be confronted with the fact that I'm undone before a holy God. And all the things that I've, I've said to myself, oh, that's just, that's just me. It's just my personality. I was hungry. I was tired. No, you don't love God. You don't love other people. But Christ has come. He's loved God fully. He's borne the sins of His people in, a body, in His body on a tree. He's been raised to life. And these are the things that build others up. And so I want to just speak a word to those of you who are enamored with being charismatic. I know you're out there. <laughs> oh, we, we have kind of a lust for immediacy and, and, and whatnot that, that is, is in there. But I just want to, to invite you to pray. To pray for gathered worship to be here for gathered worship prayerfully, and to take this text and say, Lord, in Corinth, unbelievers fell down and exclaimed that God was really among us. Lord, I take this as a promise. Why wouldn't you do this for us? Lord, I'm asking you to do this for us. Lord, I'm praying for deep conviction, for people to be transformed, for husbands to go home and apologize to their wives, 
for people to turn back to sexual purity and away from addictions, for God to really move among us both in correction and consolation that we might be His holy people. What I can only say, if that isn't happening in significant ways, is it simply because we haven't asked? Let us ask that the speech that happens, and I would not lay that all at the feet of preaching. I would say that many, many days and many, many times, it's a, it's a line from a reading of Scripture, it's a, it's a verse from a hymn that will bring me to be melted before the Lord. And I hope that's true for you. It's the whole aspect of everything that we do in gathered worship, which are things that are not going to happen in your quiet time. God has designed it that way. And we look forward to Him meeting with us exactly in that way. Well, so we want understandable words and we want them to aim to be gospel-centered words that build one another up. That, that our heart really is in uh, broken people, people who are wounded, leaving here with strengthening encouragement and comfort on a day like today. And then finally, the, the last thing that we'll say, and we'll say it kind of briefly, is that it all needs to fall out in an orderly way. Now, what, what this orderly way is, uh, we're going to have to have some conversations about, but the, the theological principle that Paul's working with is that he says in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. When we gather together, there's, there's to be uh, not confusion, but an orderly flow of understandable speech that aims for building others up. So what's in this orderly flow of speech? He says, uh, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in churches. They're not permitted to speak. They should be in submission as the law says. So one of the restraints, you see a theme in this text, hey, you tongue speakers, restrain yourself. Hey, you prophets, restrain yourselves for edification. Hey, you group of ladies, who are asking questions about prophecy and these kinds of things and, and disrupting the service, you need to be quiet. And so let's just back up for this is a shock to everybody and I can see you all sitting out there. How's he going to handle this inflammatory text? <laughs> hey, listen, Paul's not a misogynist and he's not a woman hater. You go read Romans 16. And he says to the whole church of Rome, the biggest church around, he says, when Phoebe shows up there, she's a deaconess of the church of Sincrea. You honor her, you give her what she needs for her ministry. He says the same thing in, in Philippians. He says, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche to agree with one another. And Sisygus, you help them out because these ladies have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Paul's no woman hater. This is where we get to the acute pneumonia part of this. He's got a rebuke for some ladies in here. And he's got a rebuke for the whole church of Corinth that's very pointed to their circumstance. Now, just so you know, uh, this whole thing about being silent is absolutely not a prohibition of women speaking in worship. Otherwise, we wouldn't have women reading Scripture and doing other things because we follow the Bible. If you look at this text and you go back and look at the Greek words, you find that when he says to the, the tongue speakers, he says, um, 
Each one can speak in turn, but if there's no one to interpret in verse 28, let them keep silent. If, if there's a prophet speaking and another person has a rev- revelation, let them keep silent. So clearly these are people who are speaking who are now going to be quiet. So in a, a, a translation of this that might fit better is hold your peace or be quiet for a time. Because in 11.5, Paul has given instructions, uh, chapter 11, verse 5, he's given instructions for women how to pray and prophesy in corporate worship with their heads covered. So it's simply not a prohibition on all speech. But what it does is it reflects the the broader New Testament uh, uh, version that there are things that are restricted to male leadership within the church. And what most commentators think is that it says here in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. There's a judgment about prophecies. You know, here's Ralph, the roving prophet. He shows up in Corinth and stands up and says something. Well, the elders have to adjudicate, like, does this guy really know what he's talking about? Or or who is this guy? We have to judge whether or not the church is going to receive this prophecy. And part of that, according to some commentators, is kind of an interrogation of Ralph the prophet. Tell us who you are. And it seems like the women that he tells to be silent had gotten in on that judging and, and uh, questioning of the prophets. That's why he says, if you have a question about that, ask your husband at home. Okay, so this isn't an absolute prohibition, but it's a restraint just like with tongue speakers and prophets. So he wants everything to be done decently in order. And do you see the principle here? Let's gather together and worship and hear understandable words that are aimed for building others up. And let's not have a bunch of chaos and chatter. Now, we here don't really have to worry about that a lot, do we? <laughs> I won't even go into that. So for those of you who... <laughs> you can say amen. You can make noise. It's really okay with me. Um, in verse 40, this, for those of you who are new to Presbyterianism, uh, verse 40 says, all things should be done decently and in order, okay? And this is like the Presbyterian motto for those of you who don't know. De- <laughs> decently and in order. Everything has to be orderly. And I would just say to you that there are a lot of cultural constraints on that. And I'm just going to give you one illustration before we quit. If you go to the House of Commons in England and listen to, to the members of Parliament, they bring the Prime Minister down and he has to answer questions. And they kind of yell at each other. You know, you, you've seen the videos, right? They, they say, you know, Mr. Whatever, I'm doing whatever. And they go, here, 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 here. You know, it's a big kind of rowdy thing. Here, here. They cheer for each other and stuff. That is decorum, what you call being in order or decent in that cultural situation. That's not true within our House of Representatives. Or at least historically, it wasn't true. So, <laughs> Wow. I wasn't really expecting that response. (laughs) You guys have your finger on the political pulse, huh? Um, So when this comes down to it, elders in a local church have to decide uh, what speech is restricted to women or from women. Men have to stand up and do their part in in judging. It's all in order. And this is what the, the orderly outcome of our worship looks like in our cultural situation. And that's, that's really, I think, the way this finally comes down. So brothers and sisters, my takeaway for this today is this, is that um, I'm thankful for our worship. 
I think we do a lot of things that are biblical. I'm sure that it could be reformed in many ways that I'm not aware of. I'm, I'm open to your suggestions. But I think it's saturated in the Word. I think that, that it's aimed for, for building people up in edification. And uh, it may be even a little too orderly for me. <laughs> if there is such a thing. I just want to say, you can say amen. It's all right. Um, so my, my, my big thing is I really want to invite you to write on your calendar or to put a, a little note in your phone for Saturday night or sometime to just pray earnestly for 10 minutes for our gathered worship. That God would really speak and heal and deliver and that His kingdom would come. Let's pray. Father, we come to You right now and we thank You for this text and we want to ask You to Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're just really asking you to fill us with the power and presence of the Father and the Son. And would you send us with joy to our neighbors and to the nations? And Lord, we pray for our gathered worship that it would be uh, so filled with your presence and that the words that are spoken would be uh, so strengthening and encouraging that it would be irresistible. Would you save and keep your people, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.